गुरवे गौरचंद्राय राधिकाय तदालय कृष्णाय कृष्ण भक्ताय तत्भक्ताय नमो नम सो प्रणाम गुड मॉर्निंग टू ऑल ऑफ यू फ्रॉम श्री श्री राधा गोपीनाथ मंदिर हियर इन लाचवा दिस टाइम वी आर कंटिन्यू विद आवर सीरीज ऑफ लेक्चर्स एंड radical personalism sri radical personalism and today we are in lecture number 15 and we will be continuing with this sub series or sub section on guru tattva today we have a fifth part of guru tattva and we will be talking on being rejected by one's guru that will be today's topic but let's make a brief recap or i don't know how brief recap from previous Tuesday's class, fourth part of Guru Tattva, when we talked about on leaving one's guru, which is kind of the second, the, the other side of the coin of this particular equation. So we started talking about <clears throat> the notion of apad dharma, which means emergency rules, and how in the scripture we will find the general rules or the general statements about, in this case, a guru, and how Shastra assumes that the guru will be always a bona fide representative of the agency of sri guru so those are the general rules and there will be a big abundant praise to the guru and there will be uh, an expected level of surrender to that high personality but that's the general the ideal case that the shastra is talking about then we have apadharma which is emergency emergency case <laughs> when the guru is probably not up to the occasion so to say and you are expected to reciprocate in another way basically so we talk this class are a little bit about that also when the guru is not necessarily acting as what shastra says about how a guru should be acting basically so in this connection we talked about the qualities to be expected not only from the guru but to begin from the disciple because we have to do our part and those qualities are in shastra mostly mentioned sincere inquiry willingness to surrender to sacrifice in the search of truth and the guru's qualities expected and mentioned in shastras to have knowledge of shastra to have realization of that knowledge and to exhibit all that in the form of a particular proper conduct and behavior having mind under control humanity in balance so to say and of course we say those are the qualities expected from a guru so we could say the the qualities that will make a guru fit to be rejected will be the opposite of the qualities that should be are there for him to be accepted as a guru in other words if the guru cannot teach shastra because he doesn't or she doesn't know shastra or he's deviated or immoral conduct and behavior if if instead of speaking truth lies and speaks untruth and so on shastra says that person can be rejected eventually of course we said also we shouldn't rush in this direction it's not that the guru commits one mistake or he's rejectable now but one who should wait if the guru deviates the disciple is expected to for a minute wait and pray and even confront the guru in private and present the situation but if the wrong doings continue and are repeated and are even premeditated and and the guru is not willing to hear and to change then shastra advises one to abandon such a person uh or in some cases where the situation is not that extreme some disciples may not leave that person altogether but compliment 
that connection with the Siksha Guru. Mm. Um, and we mentioned, of course, in this connection, if one leaves a guru for the right reasons, there is place for that. But if one rejects a guru who is in good standing, that's guru aparat. No? That's also a point to make. <clears throat> then we shared some quotes regarding someone who is in that situation having to reject a guru. But if one is sincere, as Celestia Maharaj will say, sincerity is invincible. So that's it. that disciple is, will be never abandoned by Krishna in that situation. We will continue speaking about that today as well. And that disciple is not devoid of shelter, even if he had to leave a guru in bad standing, so to say. The guru tattva principle continues sheltering that person. We gave the example of Bali Maharaj, who is a Mahajan, uh, because he was so attached to his principles. And that attachment to values and principles took him to, to reject his guru, Sukracharya, as we know. So, of course, we also analyze some arguments that may come if the guru is misbehaving. Someone may say, well... That's the relative side, just concentrate on the absolute side. But we mentioned that that's not necessarily always the, the, the way to deal with the situation. And sometimes in, in those cases, whatever mistake comes from some gurus is just dismissed by that's the relative side. But whatever mistakes is in, committed by a disciple, all the blame and guilt goes to the disciple, which is not necessarily something healthy, so to say. Mm -hmm. So we also spoke how there is place for reject for disobeying one guru, one's guru in, in Guru Seva. We gave the example, of course, a, if a guru is deviating, you shouldn't obey that deviation in service to the principle of Sri Guru. But even we gave some examples like some of Bhaktisiddhanta Sashvaitakur Sohal, that he's disobeying apparently Gorkishore Das Babaji on the surface only to serve him in a more substantial way on the inside. And so there is place for that as well. And we conclude our talk by making some points in connection to the Rasa Lila and, and one's abandoning one's guru in the situation of how Krishna will play the flute and the gopis will run and then Krishna will disappear, play the flute somewhere else and the gopis will run there and so on. So sometimes Krishna's flute call or clarion call through the guru or through whoever may come in one direction, a particular guru, but eventually the flute call is not sounding anymore in that direction. But we should follow the example of the gopis that, okay, now the flute is sounding there, let's go there. No? And now it's sounding there, let's go. Not get attached to the direction from which the flute is sounding <laughs> or to the shape that the, the, the sound, the flute sound will take. Just run after the call, so to say. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, as a disciple, we are actually not surrendering to, to a specific individual, but to a principle of revelation. So we are not surrendering to someone, but to something that happens to be flowing through someone. <laughs> and that's why we surrender to that someone. To the, but the guru principle is flowing through the guru agent, ideally. And we also concluded mentioning how for those who have gone through this situation of having to abandon their guru, or like we will see today, having been rejected, that's not something, if, if, if that was done, not because you did something wrong, one shouldn't feel ashamed of having gone through that particular experience. But I mean, I'm not saying that you have to look to have that experience, but if that happens, that's part of your journey and you should try to integrate those chapters as something that has the potential to, to enrich our prospect. And we should always remain hopeful and grateful with Krishna's presence and guidance that will continue there. So those are some words regarding what we saw last 
Tuesday. So let's go to today's topic. Let's make a brief introduction on the topic and then go to different sections. So today's topic again is on being rejected by one's guru. So, so last class, as we spoke last class about the unexpected, rare, but sometimes necessary act of having to abandon one's guru. Again, whenever the guru is deviated and it's not, we are not here promoting, rejecting a genuine sadhu for the wrong reasons. That will be guru aparat. But when that has to be done for whatever reasons we talked about last week. So today we'll go to the other side of that coin. Instead of having to abandon one's guru, a situation which is even more rare than that one, which is being rejected by one's guru. So today we will examine what Shastra says about it, which are the reasons for that to happen. If that can actually happen at all, we'll talk about that. Uh, and also some misunderstandings in connection to this situation of being rejected by one's guru. And, and finally, we'll conclude speaking about what's the situation of the disciple that has been rejected by his guru for the wrong reasons, which is his hair standing, the inner situation where, where they are, so to say. So let's continue with the first, so to say, initial section after this introduction. So we will talk about are there reasons for actually being rejected by one's guru? Instead of talking about reasons for being rejected by one's guru, let's frame it like this. Are there any reasons for actually being rejected by one's guru? So, so last class, last Tuesday, we examined, you may recall, three main verses from the Bhagavatam, the Gita, and the Mundaka Upanishad, which speak about the main attributes of the guru and the disciple. And the three verses basically say the same, interestingly. And we mentioned how those attributes should be there for one to be qualified. Qualified as guru and qualified as disciple. The two of them require their particular adhikar. It's not only one direction that we require qualification. So correspondingly, in relation, at least in relation to the guru, we mentioned in the last class that the absence of those attributes that qualifies someone as guru, which remember were knowledge and inner realization of the knowledge, truthfulness, personal character. The absence of those qualities in the guru will be the cause for one's leaving that guru if we are a disciple. You follow my point? So therefore one could rightfully ask, ask the question, is the same criterion applied to a disciple? No? If you say disciple, is expected to have some qualities, but does not exhibit those qualities. Does he deserve or should deserve to be rejected by the guru as we apply that same idea to the guru? Hmm? Do you follow my point? So if the disciple doesn't exhibit the qualities of the disciple, which were sincere inquiry for truth, proper surrender, humility, service attitude, is he, she then fit to be uh, rejected as a student? Hmm? So these are interesting questions that we should make ourselves, <laughs> important, relevant questions. And they are not, in one sense, fully articulated in Shastra, although we will see that there are some hints there, but we need to play the implications, play out the implications of that. So we'll try to examine that today, at least on some level. So, of course, before going to that, in connection to this, needless to say, but just in case, <laughs> if a disciple is not exhibiting the ideal symptoms of a disciple of surrender and so on, because the guru is not ideal. 
Well, that's not a failure of the disciple. We are speaking about other, again, emergency case, another category. If a guru is deviated, the disciple shouldn't be ex exhibiting surrender, submission to that deviation, so to say. So even in those cases, the lack of surrender and the lack of submission in that case from the disciple may be a symptom of the disciple's sincerity <laughs> and commitment to truth and unwillingness to surrender to something which is not true. Mm -hmm. If, if Guru Tattva is not being represented through someone who is wrongly situated, I won't surrender in that direction. But just in case I clarify that, but in, the point is here, let's assume that the Guru is not deviated. It's a good standing. It's a very truly genuine saddle. And the disciple is the one who fails on the attributes expected from a disciple. So what to do then? What happens with the disciple? Is the disciple... Worthy of being rejected by the guru in that case, as we mentioned, it happens with the guru in the opposite case. No? <clears throat> so as we mentioned in the last class, if a disciple fails to have some of the qualities expected from a disciple, we briefly touched up on this last class. We mentioned that that failure from the disciple's side is not to be considered on the same level as the guru failing in what's expected from a guru. Hmm? Since while we'll generally assume that the guru is highly situated than a disciple. Like expecting a child, like father-child situation. Like if you expect a child, if you're a father, you will expect your child to make some considerable mistakes uh, that the father is not supposed to do, ideally. <laughs> Again, ideal scenario. And if a fa But if a father fails as a father and becomes even abusive father, the child may eventually leave that father. And take a distance from that person. But if the child makes childish mistakes, the father is expected to forgive the child. Not to disown the child or something, but to continue helping the child to grow and to mature. That's kind of the role and the dynamics of the father-child relationship, which somehow we'll see as quite connected to the guru-disciple relationship. Of course, I'm not saying this to over-justify bad behavior, from a disciple to the guru. Okay, it's okay, we will be always forgiven, so let's do whatever nonsense we want. No, but to establish the typical framework of a guru-disciple relationship. Again, a guru is kind of a loving father, uh, or if he's a gurvi, a female Vaishnavi guru, a loving mother, <laughs> there's place for that just in case. <laughs> so there will be a loving father, mother, parent towards the childlike disciple, if you will. So the guru, and remember, the guru is the personification of, of the Kripa Shakti of Bhagavan, of the, is the mercy-giving potency. In the life of the student, that's the guru. That's Krishna's costless mercy, unconditional love embodied in front of me. So that clearly speaks about which should be the generous, merciful disposition from the guru toward the disciple and his capacity to overlook mistakes in the disciple and to forgive them and to nourish them affectionately despite all, despite whatever imperfections may be still present in his students. And all of that will give great shelter and hope to the students. Oh, I'm such a disaster still, but Gurudev is so kind and merciful and and that inspires further surrender, actually. Indeed, Bhakti Sandarva, Jiva Goswami Bhakti Sandarva mentions that it is essential to accept as guru, a devotee who is compassionate toward us, 
Because if not, we won't develop affection for him. So it's important that the gurus, remember, he's a representative of Krishna. Who is Krishna? He, Krishna, Karuna, Sindhu. An ocean of mercy. Narottam Thakur says the same. Sri Guru, Karuna, Sindhu. Guru is an ocean of mercy because he's representing the, an ocean of mercy. <laughs> so the Guru has to exhibit that and the disciple will be moved by that to such a point that will develop deep affection and natural reciprocity. So with this, we're starting to re reply to the question. I'm not finished here, but to the question of are there reasons for the disciple to be actually rejected? So now let's take this same situation one step further, so to say. And I'd like to share with you one quote that I shared a few days ago on social media from Srila Bhakti Vibhuta Bodhayan Maharaj, a disciple of Srila Bhakti Pramod Puri Goswami Maharaj. Uh, this comes from a book he wrote, Essential Vaishnava Teachings. He says the following in this connection. If there is a possibility for the guru to actually reject or disown the disciple. So I'll read the quote. It says like this. The connection between the guru and the disciple is eternal. A bona fide guru will never reject his disciples. The spiritual master is not an individual. He's tattva. Akanda guru tattva. This means that the principle of guru is one. And in actuality, the spiritual master is the entire parampara for his embodiment of all the previous gurus. As explained earlier, gurus are the mercy expansions of the Supreme Lord and therefore extremely merciful. So how could they reject their disciples? So that's the end of the quote. So here, Sri Labodai and Maharaj, I mean, gives a very strong but clear statement, which basically he mentions a bona fide guru will never reject his a disciple. In other words, if the disciple is rejected, then the guru was not bona fide. That's basically the implication of, of this verse. And when I'm saying here not bona fide, of course, I don't mean to totally condemn the person who, the guru who may have rejected the disciple, but at least that person was not bona fide at the moment of such rejection. <laughs> at the moment of the rejection, that person was not representing Guru Tattva in a bona fide way. Because as we see, Guru Tattva is mercy department of Bhagavan. And this is what Maharaj is saying here in his quote. He's describing also what we already mentioned. Guru is not an individual. It's not a person, but a principle. Akanda Guru Tattva. And with this, he's hinting at the idea if a Vyasti guru, if an individual agent rejects a disciple, that doesn't mean that Guru Tattva, the agency, Samasti guru, has rejected that student. I will speak about more of that later, but he's hinting here that even if some individual guru does that rejection, that doesn't mean that the disciple is disconnected from the parampara. And again, he concludes in this quote by emphasizing the extremely merciful nature of the guru, which will make it impossible for the guru to reject the student, basically, no matter even how deviated the student may be. That's basically what we understand by unconditional love. Try to play out the implications of the meaning of those words. Unconditional love, costless mercy, they are like synonymous with one another. So again, when I'm saying all these things, I'm not trying to over-justify anything, any misbehavior on the part of any student, but to make important points that 
need to be considered in situations like like this, like the ones we are analyzing, analyzing today. So at this point, someone may ask, okay, nice quote that you shared, Maharaj, but there's anything in Shastra about this? Because, okay, you quote someone, something from Guru, Sadhu, but we have Guru, Shastra, and Sadhu. So does Shastra say something about a guru rejecting a disciple? Hmm? So it's a valid question, of course. And at least personally, I have not found any single verse, shout, sloka, or statement about that. And I've done some research and I've inquired from some other Gaudiya, Vaishnav scholars. And there's no single verse about <laughs> I mean, we already shared some verses last class about when to reject the guru. But we don't find a parallel version of those about when to reject the disciple, interestingly. A disciple that has been already accepted by the guru. However, what gets closer to this, and sometimes some of the will quote these verses that I will share now as example of rejection, but we will see it's a different situation. <laughs> what gets closer to this, but it's not the same, is a series of verses from the Hari Bhakti Vilas of Srila Sanatana Goswami. But as we will see, now I'll quote the, quote the verses, uh, these verses are not speaking about an accepted disciple, a disciple that was already accepted by the guru and, and then being later rejected. But these verses will speak about a guru rejecting a prospective candidate, which is not the same. <laughs> no, he's rejecting him before accepting him. Do you follow my point? So it's a subtle but very important difference. <laughs> And that hints that the, the hinting here will be that once accepted and hopefully carefully accepted by the guru, the guru should then accept the disciple completely. There was, there's no place for, for, for eventual rejection. So I'll share the verses from Hari Bhakti Vilas, just in case. <laughs> they say like this, and they further confirm that this, this is about prospective candidates, not already accepted disciples. Although a spiritual master may accept a surrendered soul who has faith and devotion as his disciple, even though he may not have the other good qualities that were mentioned, he should avoid making disciples with the faults that are now being described. So now comes the list of faults, but there it makes clear he should avoid making disciples. Now comes the list. One should not accept as a disciple, again, a person who is lazy, impure, proud, a miser, wretched, deceased, angry, attached to sense gratification, greedy, envious, jealous, a cheater, or harsh. He should not accept a person who over-endeavors for material gains, earns money through improper means, enjoys another's wife, is inimical to intelligent persons, falsely claims to be learned, does not follow any vow, earns his livelihood with great difficulty, finds fault in, with others, or gives distress to others. He should not accept as a disciple a one who is a voracious eater, cruel, sinful, evil-minded, crooked, or the lowest among human beings. Makes sense. <laughs> those who cannot be restrained from performing activities that should not be performed, and those who are unable to follow the teachings of a spiritual master are unfit to become disciples. Spiritual master should unhesitatingly reject such people. End of the quote. So we, it's clear that it's not rejecting disciples, 
but rejecting people who present themselves as such but are not willing to, to be disciples, basically. So as it is clearly mentioned, the above verses, which again, some of the words may quote, here is the section which speaks about that, but it's not about accepted disciples, it's about prospective candidates. If you ex even if you examine the context of the verses, not only the, the content of these verses, but the context, you will see that the Hari Bhakti Vilasa, this section is speaking about the preliminary activities before initiation. So it makes it further clear, this is not about someone who has been already initiated and accepted. Because in this section, Hari Bhakti Vilas will be speaking about the guru and disciples should live together for one year so they know each other before initiation. <laughs> now comes, then comes this verse that I just quote, the guru should reject such prospective candidates. And then after these verses come the verse about accepting the disciple, initiation, and so on. So there is a sequence there. So it's important to understand the texts in context because texts without a context becomes a pretext. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so again, it's not about rejecting someone who was already accepted, but it's about rejecting prospective candidates. Subtle, but very important difference. <laughs> now, just to give an example, this will be kind of the difference between choosing not to get pregnant and, and engaging in an abortion. The result in both cases is the same, no kid, no child, but it's a very different situation. In one case, you decide not to be impregnated, so to say. In another, side, in another case, you accept the impregnation, but then kick out, so to say, the person. So it's not the same. To follow the analogy of, of the of bhakti, you know, like this, the result is the same, no kid. But in one, no, you are choosing not to be impregnated by the seed. No? If you chose to think of bhakti like the bhakti lata beach, the seed of bhakti that is given by the guru, no? bhakti is not inherent, it's bestowed by the guru. And in the other cases, you are killing the vessel of the soul of, uh, and, and forcing it outside of the womb of shelter, something, something like that. So it's not the same. So in other words, there is nothing in Shastra, again, at least to my knowledge, and I'm open to, I remain open to be further educated and informed about this, but there are no actual injunctions like there are with the guru, with abandoning a guru in connection to abandoning an accepted disciple. Mm -hmm. So that heavily speaks about the nature of the relationship and especially heavily speaks about the merciful nature of the guru. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, in fact, after the verses that I just quoted from Hari Bhakti Vilas, then a few verses after those, there's one more verse in which Hari Bhakti Vilas further pounds the post, making it clear, which is the, the level of responsibility of the guru and says, just as a king has to take responsibility for the faults of his ministers and the husband has to take responsibility for the sins of his wife, spiritual master has to accept the accumulated sins of his disciples. So what to speak of rejecting them? That's my point. <laughs> Now, if the guru takes that responsibility, I accept you with all your tons of sins. What to speak of rejecting? There's no, there's no place for that even. So that verse comes after the ones I shared. <clears throat> so this is a very heavy point on how merciful the guru principle is in relation to, to this mercy of Sri Guru. This is even further like portrayed in those classical personalities which who embody Akanda Guru Tattva, both 
for Kama Rupa Bhakti and Sambanda Rupa Bhakti, like the Department of Madhurya Rasa and the Department of Vatsalya Sakya Dasya and, and Santa. Generally, Balaram is portrayed as the Akanda Guru Tattva for Sambanda Rupa Bhakti for Sakya Vatsalya Dasya Santa. And Shirada is portrayed as the Guru Tattva for Kama Rupa Bhakti, Madhurya Rasa. And in Gorlila, of course, we have them as appearing as Gadadhar Pandit and Nityananda Prabhu. So if you analyze the life of them, they really show their principle of being generous. For example, Balaram being the guru in, in, in mace, fighting mace mm -hmm. with Duryodhan. And he accepted Duryodhan as a disciple and never rejected him, although he knew who was Duryodhan. <laughs> so extremely merciful disposition. What to speak when that same Baladev appears in Gorlila as Nityananda Prabhu, you know, the most ir irrational, transrational disposition of mercy, extreme. Jagai Madai and so many other examples ourselves. <laughs> in Gorlila also Sri Radha appears as Gadadhar Pandit. Gadadhar Pandit is said that he was totally mild and merciful and accepted everyone, even Balaba, who was kind of rejected by all the other associates of Mahaprabhu. And Gadadhar was kind enough to receive him. And what to speak about Sri Radha herself? She's known as Karuna Mai. No? She who is his, who, she whose very composition is made of mercy, uh, and so many other attributes about her that speaks about her radical grace. No? She's always doing this mudra, transferring, conferring extreme mercy. So my point is, all these personalities who personify Guru Tattva are extremely showing this mercy principle. At this point, someone may give, try, for example, make recall, since we mentioned Dronacharya and Balaram, we went to the Mahabharata. Let's go one second to the Mahabharata. Someone say, we have the example in Mahabharata of Hikalapya. He went to Dronacharya and he was rejected by Dronacharya. So the guru rejected the disciple. But again, Dronacharya didn't accept Hikalapya as a disciple to begin with. He rejected him as a prospective candidate, <laughs> which again further confirms the verses of Hari Bhakti Vilas. The, that we shared, you know, that's that's what it's about. It's not about rejecting an already accepted disciple. Mm -hmm. So what we have seen so far is that a guru is fit to be rejected mm -hmm. if he, if he exhibits the opposite qualities of expected from a guru. We already mentioned that. But regarding the disciple, the same criteria does not apply. Basically, it's not exactly the same case. Mm -hmm. So the opposite, in other words, if a disciple doesn't show the quality of a disciple, it, Shastra is not saying he's fit to be rejected by his guru, once accepted, once he was accepted. Hmm. So this clearly shows again what's, that it, there's a bigger part of responsibility in the relationship between, between guru and disciple. A bigger part falls on the guru, hmm. and not so much on the disciple. Again, the example of father-child. You cannot demand from the child take extreme responsibility for his father or for the relationship. It's a child. Yeah. <laughs> okay, not an excuse to be lazy, to be complacent, but just to understand how these dynamics work. Mm -hmm. That said, let's try to put everything on the scale, mm -hmm. as, at least as much as, as we can. So considering the above, what we have shared till now, someone may still say that, okay, but in the beginning... Okay, guru and disciple accepted each other, uh, a particular example of them, and each other exhibited some 
bona fide symptoms, so to say, as a disciple, as a guru. And it's okay, but what happens if after that something changes? No? So there should, at least someone may say, there should, be, there should be scope for the guru to be free to reject a disciple who in time maybe started nicely by eventually behaved extremely differently than how he presented himself originally. So in the, in the same way as we saw in the last class, for a disciple, if the guru begins in a nice way, but eventually the guru starts to deviate more and more and more, there's place for the disciple to reject the guru. So there should be, the guru should have a chance to reject the disciple who eventually becomes a, a monster or whatever, once after accepted. And indeed, although, although we have no scriptural injunction for that, as we shared already <laughs> about the possibility <clears throat> of a guru rejecting a disciple. What we find is an interesting example, well-known one in Shastra, that somehow could be connected in this regard. Let's see how much. <laughs> and that's the example of Madhavendra Puri and Ramachandra Puri. Madhavendra Puri rejects Ramachandra Puri, at least in some form, at least it seems so. Although interestingly, if we go to that section of Chaitanya Charitamrita, we'll see that in one sense, it's never clear that Madhavendra Puri rejected, rejected Ramachandra Puri completely as a disciple. In, in fact, in, in the comments of those verses, Srila Prabhupada mentions that speaks about the guru rebuking, rebuking the disciple as something favorable for the disciple, like just mercy through chastisement or something. <laughs> And in fact, in Chaitanya Charitamrita and Antelila, chapter 8, verse 32, just in case you want to check, it's mentioned that Ramachandra Puri received nigrahera, which means chastisement, which not, is not the same as disowning. But then Chaitanya Charitamrita, Antelila, chapter 8, verse 99, says, speaks about upekshakaile, which sometimes is translated as rejection, which seems to give the idea that the guru can reject the disciple, but also you have to speak which type of rejection. You can reject someone for a moment, you know, some type of rebuking, as you say, or some a very different thing is to disown the person and to totally cut all ties with the disciple. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, the, ter the term of Pekshakaili, although sometimes it's translated as rejecting, also sometimes it can be translated as disregard, neglect, you know, like a form of indifference and which can very much apply to this particular situation of Madhavendra Puri and Ramachandra Puri, in which context these words appear. Because as you know, Ramachandra, Ramachandra Puri was rejected, rebuked, whatever, <laughs> neglected by his guru on, he, on Madhavendra Puri's last, very last days, while Madhavendra Puri was lamenting in an ecstatic way, etc., in separation from Sri Krishna. And Ramachandra Puri came there, there to instruct his guru, Madhavendra Puri, and told him to meditate on Brahman and stop lamenting, because Madhavendra Puri was lamenting in divine separation. So this is an extreme case, we see. It's not just like a normal situation. And being told, very much enraged, Madhavendra Puri to say that he told Ramachandra Puri, get out and don't show me your face to me. So he didn't say, I disown you as my disciple, just told him, Get out of my room now. 
Of course, as a result of that Guru Parad, it is mentioned in Chaitanya Charitamrita that Ramachandra Puri became a critic of everyone and of everything, basically, including Mahaprabhu himself. So even if we want to take this as an example of a guru rejecting a disciple, which is not something clear, as we can see, we should then say this is a totally extreme case. You know, like you have here a disciple who is actually a Maya body, who is suggesting meditate on Brahman, and he's instructing someone like Madhavendra Puri on his deathbed in impersonal terms. You know, like forget about Radha and Krishna and focus on Brahman in your last breath. It's like the worst possible scenario. <laughs> but interestingly, if, if we would like to think, okay, Madhavendra Puri rejected Ramachandra Puri after this incident, Mahaprabhu meets with Ramachandra Puri and Mahaprabhu shows respect to Ramachandra Puri, at least formally, if you will, but he washed his feet. Uh, he, he said, I'm your student, you are my guru, he even said to Ramachandra Puri. And he treated Ramachandra Puri with that respect because Ramachandra Puri is a disciple of Madhavendra Puri. So the point that Mahaprabhu treated him with such respect as a disciple of Madhavendra Puri implies that he was not actually disowned as a disciple of Madhavendra Puri, mm -hmm. so, but rejected on some level. Again, there's, it's not the same to speak about rejection and disowning. There are levels of, the, of all that. So in conclusion, what we could say is that Shastra basically does not speak about this possibility. Mm -hmm. Once the guru accepted the disciple, it's not basically considered that the guru can reject disown this, the disciple permanently, completely. And if it seems it does, like the case of Madhavendra Puri, which again is not very clear, and for, it's more for me, most go to the idea of not disowning, but just some form of temporary rejection. In those cases, we should also be able to differentiate between rejecting, rebuking, some momentary neglect, and disowning as a permanent cutting of all ties and relationship. Mm -hmm. And as we mentioned, the latter total disowning for what we saw and Shastra says is not plausible because of the extremely merciful disposition of a guru who, again, if the guru fails to be extremely merciful and, is, and ends up disowning the disciple by a lack of mercy, so to say, probably the guru is failing as a guru instead of a disciple being failing and deserving to be rejected. But again, for the sake of possibility, Let's say that in the case that there is some slight possibility for a guru to disown the disciple, and this is somehow, this is, will be justified somehow, then the only possible conclusion is that the, in those cases, the disciple must have, have, must have done something extremely horrific, the worst possible thing, or the disciple must be a really evil person. And even if those cases, which as we mentioned, even are not plausible that the guru will reject them, but if the disciple behaves in such a way due to such guru apparat that that disciple will commit, those disciples probably after such an offense to the guru, as a reaction to that offense, probably those disciples will leave the practice altogether. Or if they continue externally as a practitioner, they will behave in extremely horrible ways from that moment on due to such a, an offense. But again, even in those cases, it will be surprising to hear that that the guru, who is the very embodiment of the Kripa Shakti of Bhagavan, again, Bhagavan is Karuna Sindhu, the guru is Karuna Sindhu, it would be surprising to hear that such a person will reject or disown 
any of his disciples. So anyhow, some words regarding this first section, regarding if there are actual any actual reasons for the guru to disown the disciple. Let's go to the next section. We'll talk a little bit about misunderstandings concerning being rejected by one's guru. So unfortunately, in scenarios like the ones we have described till now, sometimes devotees will rush to conclude Oh, whomever has been rejected by their guru must necessarily be deviated at wrong. And because you are rejected, you must be wrong. Because again, the, sometimes it is the guru can never be wrong. So if something happened, it's always the fault of the disciple. Mm -hmm. Because and I'm not considering the possibility of a guru can disown a disciple for the wrong reasons, as we saw, it's plausible. Or, or we saw disowning the disciple in itself is something wrong. What speak of for the wrong reasons? <laughs> So if we deny this possibility that a, a disciple may have been disowned for the wrong reason, so to say, that's a big problem because this sets up a perfect system for, for abuse. Again, if the guru is always right, that means if something goes wrong, it means the disciple is it's always the fault of the disciple. And this mentality is deeply toxic, dangerous, will create a, a pressure that will kind of silence abuse. And we see that, <laughs> both in the case of the victims themselves or also even in the case of those who know about it, but ignore it. Mm -hmm. So if we want to avoid setting up those scenarios, such a system which fosters the silencing of abuse, in situations like this, if we hear, okay, a disciple has been rejected by his guru or her guru, we should begin by, instead of rushing and, and, and getting some quick conclusion and maybe prejudice, we should ask first a few questions, ideally even ask the person involved, directly involved, personally involved, the person who was personally rejected. So first question will be, what were, which were the actual reasons for such a rejection? Were there any reasons? Then were those reasons given actually true? Just in case. <laughs> Third, if true, are those reasons proportionate to something so unheard of as a guru needing to reject his own disciple? So at least we can begin with the above questions in order to have a more balanced assessment of, of the situation, of such a complex issue. And yes, scrutiny should be always applied to both, both parties, not just, oh, if this happened, the disciple must be wrong because the guru rejected or anything. Or vice versa, again, if a disciple rejects a guru, it doesn't mean that necessarily the guru was wrong. No, with this, we want to always keep the, the whole equation balanced. So we have heard that if a disciple rejects the guru unjustifiably, then the disciple, as we mentioned, engaged in a great fault towards the spiritual master, Guru Aparat, to be more precise. So I think it's logical to conclude the same that the same holds true in the other direction as well. If the guru rejects a disciple for the wrong reasons, then that guru will be committing aparat. You follow my idea? If the disciple rejects the guru for the wrong reasons, disciple commits aparat. If the guru rejects the disciple for wrong reasons, or as we mentioned, rejects the disciple, <laughs> according to Shastra, it, it may be that the disciple, the guru is committing sisya aparat, aparat towards the disciple, so to say, or toward the guru principle, whom that guru is not representing properly. That's a form of guru aparat as well. So with, when I'm saying this, I'm not telling this to condemn anyone because, of course, there's always a chance for, 
for reformation, for repent to proper acknowledgement, repentance, and corresponding corrective actions, whether if a guru did wrong or if a disciple did wrong, there is place to continue growing and progressing. We are not proposing here eternal damnation to anyone. So, so in the situation that we just addressed, it is possible, again, that the guru may fail to act as a guru and reject his or her disciple, even though the rejection was not required or justified, as we saw, it's not justified at all. Therefore, the point is that, that, that a disciple is rejected by her guru or his guru, in any, whatever case, that doesn't necessarily mean that the disciple is actually wrong. But in some cases, even that the guru may be wrong for, for, for invoking that rejection. So in that sense, we could say that if a guru rejects a disciple for the wrong reasons, in, in that we could say that guru can then be rejected for the right reasons, so to say. Something like that. No? So, <clears throat> so in rejection to a guru rejecting a disciple for the wrong reasons, uh, which as what we see for Shastris, there's no reason to reject a disciple, so that's the wrong reason. <laughs> Some may say in, in that case to the disciple, for example, things like, okay, what's your destiny through go through that to be rejected? So that's not actually unjust since everything happens for some reason and so on. And of course, this is the case. Now, whatever happens to us happens for some reason. So we won't think this was unjust. That has a purpose, but that doesn't mean that if the guru rejected the disciple for something that the disciple never did, that doesn't mean that the disciple has to accept that, so to say, as true, so to say. Let's say that the guru accuses the disciple of being something that it is not. Okay, it's not unjust that I'm going through this, but that's not true. That false accusation, is, there are two different things. You follow my point. No, that is, the fact that the disciple had to go through that situation doesn't make a false accusation toward the disciple true. So we should separate these two things. No, because if not, it's false humility. You have to accept whatever accusations come to you. No, some things I never did, I never did them. But for some reason, I'm going through that false accusation or something. No? Another misunderstanding in relation to a disciple who was rejected for the wrong reasons I've heard Devotees saying to people like those, the rejected ones, <laughs> that they are not allowed, for example, to speak Harikata because they don't have a guru. So they cannot talk, basically. Or, or even in some more extreme cases, that uh, if you don't have a guru, whatever that means for these critics, <laughs> then you have no connection with Krishna at all. And nothing real can be flowing through you, basically. You, so you shouldn't be speaking Harikata. No, in other words, the implication is whatever you think, whatever you feel, whatever you say will be nonsense and will be devoid of grace due to having been disowned by your guru. Mm -hmm. Even if you were rejected for the wrong reasons or no reason whatsoever, which of course doesn't make any sense as we mentioned because if one is sincerely connected, one's still a representative. <laughs> so this same criticism may take some time the form of remarks like, well, people need to know who is the teacher you are representing. In the case you have been rejected by your guru, then who are you representing? Implying with that, again, you cannot speak. But again, we could say, well, Rupa Goswami is arguably our most important teacher, but we don't know who was his guru. 
does make Rupa Goswami less authoritative? I don't think so. <laughs> mm. So again, if it's, it's the point is if someone disowned and some, some disciple is disowned unjustly, that person may still be representing the Sampradaya perfectly if it's sincere and qualified. Because strictly speaking, if the person was disowned for the wrong reasons, and again, remember, we mentioned that there are actual, no actual reasons for being disowned as an accepted disciple, then that person has not been actually rejected by Guru Tattva, by Sri Guru. But that person was rejected by a Bhyasti Guru who, at the moment of the rejection at least, did not represent the principle of Sri Guru. Mm -hmm. So there is no actual reason, uh, or there is no actual rejection, so to say, in a substantial sense in that case. Mm -hmm. The rejection was just on a more superficial level, but not in a substantial way. So in other words, if a representative or a Bhyasti of that agency, Samasti, rejects a disciple for the wrong reasons, that actually shows that such rejection does not come from the Guru Tattva, the department itself, since that individual Guru did not actually represent the spirit of the Guru Tattva department while rejecting the disciple. Hmm? That's the conclusion in those cases that Sri Guru has not rejected the disciple, which means that such disciple hasn't lost the shelter hmm, and guidance from Sri Guru. So that say we may wonder then what is then the the situation of those disciples who had abandoned who have abandoned their gurus for the right reason who have been rejected for the wrong reasons uh, who were rejected on some way for the wrong reason but in some way but in a more substantial way they were not rejected as we have seen by the guru tattva principle or again in connection to the previous class was the situation of those devotees who abandoned their gurus for the right reasons but who have not yet taken shelter in another Vaishnava. In which sense do they still have a guru? So let's conclude analyzing these points in the next section. <clears throat> the last one of this today's class. So the title of this section is What's the situation of a disciple who has been unjustly rejected by his guru or who has abandoned his guru for the right reasons? To begin with, Let's share a quote by Sila Siddharmar as it comes to mind, where he says, not having a guru means that whenever I look, I feel I cannot trust. Mm -hmm. So in other words, if you feel that you cannot trust, mm -hmm. in the context of what we are presenting today, if you feel that you can still trust, sorry, <laughs> first, in the context of what you are presenting today, having had to abandon a guru, having been rejected unjustly, if you still feel you can trust, then you still have a guru according to the words of Sila Siddhar Maharaj. But if you feel that you cannot trust in any direction, even if you officially have guru, then in a substantial sense you do not have guru according to the words of Sila Siddhar Maharaj. Of course, it's not black and white. You have, you don't have maybe nuances to that, but that's the main point. So in relation to this section also, I will develop this particular section on the basis of an article that I wrote like three years ago more than three years ago, called Who is Really Our Guru? And this article was written as an attempt to be, give clarity and hope to some god brothers, god sisters of mine at the time, whose guru, who was my guru, my first guru, had serious problems eventually with sexual abuse. So the disciples who abandoned him had to abandon him. They found themselves completely confused, overwhelmed, questioning like the relationship 
with the principle of Sri Guru, the relationship with Krishna himself is still functioning or not? If so, how? So although this article that I wrote was written in connection to, to those who had to abandon their guru for the right reasons, all of this idea, or at least most of them, can also be applied to today's topic, to someone who has been unjustly disowned by one's guru. And what's their situation? So let's share some thoughts about that. <laughs> so needless to say, in these two possible circumstances hmm, that I've just described, abandoning one guru for the right reasons, being rejected for the wrong reasons, the disciple, whatever the case, will be feel, okay, I've been thrown into a turbulent, uh, bewildering limbo, not knowing where to go, what to do, where it is. No, I don't know if I have guru, I don't have guru. Where is Krishna in my life? Is there still shelter of not or not? I mean, I'm rightfully... I may be rightfully questioning in those situations how to continue, basically. Who am I? Who is God in my life now? What measures are to be taken so I can continue with my practice without losing contact with divine grace and so on? So in such situation, again, someone may ask what to do if one's faith in one's guru has been considerably damaged for understandable and unavoidable reasons. Should one change or not change guru? Does one still have guru if he rejected the disciple for the wrong reasons? So first of all, in connection to all these possible questions and many more that may come for sure, we must establish, <coughs> and let's go to our first class in one way, we must establish that guru is one, guru tattva is one, as we mentioned. So if someone accepts God as the ultimate reality and is sincerely seeking him, from that moment on, we could say Bhagavan will take the role of guru actively within our hearts. Hmm? Chaita guru. Hmm? He's the original guru, Krishna. The original Tiparamparashri guru himself. And such inner guru will give the impulse to seek in one direction or another. And thus eventually he will reveal the outer guru, external guru, who will appear before us hmm? in the form of one sadhu or more sadhus whomever, wherever, whenever, however, that has to happen. No rush. Even if in this lifetime you have been rejected unjustly or whatever, and you have to wait lifetimes for meeting a sadhu to take shelter, and it's no problem if you are properly nourished and sheltered by the guru department. So ideally, a crisis of faith that a disciple or a devotee in this situation may be going through should not lead us to the conclusion or to conclude that, okay, no, I no longer need any guru in a biasti form. I'm okay with God in my heart. That's enough. I mean, it's okay, but the point is, if our search for God is real, they will not only be searching for God. Our goal is not Krishna, but our goal is Krishna Prem. So we will, love to love, we will seek to love him in a specific way. Hmm? And to respond to such a longing, Bhagavan will make arrangements and will manifest, manifest himself in our lives in the form of one or more sadhus who will constitute the personification of that love we aspire, we longing for, we aspire to offer. Although in the beginning, of course, we received that bhakti from those sadhus, but in the case of being abandoned by the guru or whatever the case, we may already have some affinity that will be again re-nourished by a particular sadhu in time. So in this way, there will be only new manifestations of the same Supreme Guru. Remember, Guru is one. Of the same inexhaustible principle that always, that always is, 
was and will be a single indivisible absolute truth. We call it Akanda Guru Tattva. Akanda means indivisible. And the Akanda Guru Tattva is not two, three, four, but one which appears in our life in different forms according to the need of the moment. So Krishna as the inner guru will never allow any sincere seeker to see, to see his search finished or frustrated. But for this, of course, we as seekers must be sincere, mature and dynamic in our journey for sure. And despite the difficulties of such a test, we must remember Sri Guru continues to exist in his original and irrepressible and undivided form, Akanda Guru Tattva, again, Krishna, Radha, Gadadhar, Nitai, Balaram, whatever. And such agency will continue making the arrangements for every sincere aspirant to continue advancing towards their goal. An example in this connection has been given of how if we have been rejected or we had to reject the guru for the right reasons, how the guru agency will continue compensating for the loss, so to say. This was an example given by one of my former gurus. So the example is of some seller that comes to your house selling whatever, encyclopedias, and is visiting your house and convinces you to purchase a, purchase a collection. So you pay for that, and the person mentions, I cannot give it to you, I have to offer that to other neighbors, but it will come to your house. But in time, you, not, you don't receive the encyclopedia, and you realize this was a scam. So the guy ran with my money. So you contact the central agency directly, and when they realized oh, one of our agents did not properly represent the agency, then what will the agency do? They will send their best salesman to the, your house the next day, not with one, but with two encyclopedia, and with some ice cream and some extra gifts. <laughs> so you will be end up receiving more than what you expected for initially. So similarly, in connection to Guru Tattva, this analogy applies in that same way. If, if an agent representing the agency failed to represent that agency properly, that same agency and department will generously compensate those who honestly, those clients, so to say, following the analogy, who invested their time, their energy, their faith in the direction that eventually failed to deliver as promised. So, but the agency will compensate again. Therefore, there's no need to fear or to worry if we have gone through some of these dynamics Still Guru Tattva Sri Guru, which is one, an extremely merciful continue gives us, giving us hope and shelter. So in other words, the inner Guru will not allow anyone to stop moving towards the goal. And a genuine seeker will not allow anything nor anyone to stop him or her in his progress towards the goal. So the first of these two parts will be always there without fail. The inner guru will always will not allow anyone to stop us from moving toward goal. But the second part, it is up to us <laughs> to make sure that we are complying with the second part, to be sincere in our search so nothing stops us from our search of our goal, to remain as genuine seekers, basically. So strictly speaking, the guru has not been changed and cannot be changed in any moment because guru is one. It's indivisible. Again, it's non-dual principle. Only the external presentation of that principle may change in some situations, but the substantive principle remains the same. So in, that, in those cases, like the ones we are analyzing today, the disciple must recognize, okay, where is my guru now? Which form has that principle taken? Where the sacred principle is being revealed 
in a real permanent way. Mm? So if we stay with this desire mm, to keep moving towards the attainment of Bhagavan, nothing can stop us, no one can stop us. As Srila Siddhartha said, when someone asked him, between Diksha Siksha Guru, who is the most important guru, he said, your most important guru is the one who is helping you the most, which implies helping you the most to move, really move towards the ultimate goal. And in some cases, like the case of a disciple who has to abandon his guru was rejected unjustly, the God in the heart may be the most important guru for some at some moments. There is place for that. By this we refer to the Chaitya guru, the internal guru. And sometimes in our tradition there is lots of emphasis that we have a Chaitya guru, but that we cannot relate, there is more emphasis on that probably, that we cannot relate to the Chaitya guru in almost any way, so we need the external guru to make sense of the Chaitya Guru. So while this may be the case in some situations for sure, in circumstances like the ones we are addressing in today's class, or in other cases as well, I think there is place also for connecting, hearing and taking shelter in, in the Chaitya Guru, God in the heart as a representation of Guru Tattva. Because if we do not do so, and if heavy emphasis is made only on the human figure in the Vyasti Guru exclusively, sometimes we may end up totally dismissing God's presence in our heart as the inner guidance, which in the case for a devotee will be not Paramatma in the heart, but Krishna himself, once Istadev. So even if you have a very in a genuine, truly genuine Guru in your life, who is the external representation of your Chaita Guru, in one sense on a daily basis, 24-7, we are not relating with our Vyasti Guru at every moment but we are relating with our Chaitya Guru at every moment since he's omnipresent and omniscient. So my point is, I think there is place for both emphasis, not only the Vyasti Guru, but also the Chaitya Guru, because ultimately these two are non-different. Remember, Guru Tattva is one, not two, it's non-dual. So we, sh we one shouldn't be putting all the emphasis on one over the other, because in that case, one may be creating a dualism between the guru, one guru and the other, Chaitya Guru, Vyasti Guru. And remember, we belong to a, a non-dual tradition, as we already explained. Non-dual thinking is a crucial part of radical personalism. So therefore, if, if the external guru is to be abandoned, or has abandoned the disciple unjustly, Krishna remains in the heart as our guru, as he always was, as he always was present there. So. An important point in this connection is that before accepting or before considering an individual as our guru, we must, we for, must first make Bhagavan our guru. He's Sri Guru originally. He's the very beginning of the Paramparam Guru Tattva. He's Jagat Guru. And he will always make the arrangements and manifest in our life if we wish in one way or another. And he will give us the intelligence to recognize him according to our degree of sincerity. So if we genuinely pray about it, there will be no room for doubts in our heart about where to go, how to proceed. Even if there are some periods of doubt, Krishna in the heart will clear or if we are sincere. So in this way, the, the Guru's external form, external form may change. Hopefully not, but sometimes it happens. So in some cases, the external form of the Guru may change, but the Guru is still there. The Guru is still one, still there always. And in fact, eventually, our consciousness must grow to the point of perceiving Sri Guru everywhere. 
until the day comes that we will enter the land of gurus, in the words of Srila Siddhar Maharaj. So you will be only entering a land of gurus if you start to prepare yourself for entering such a land here and now by perceiving the presence of Guru Tattva in different forms here and there. So as we already mentioned, and bear with me a few more moments, to reject Sri Guru in total completely is of course certainly a delicate offense. But if on other hand, some people instruct us to act against the principles revealed in the Shastra and through the Sadhus, disobeying such a person will not be apparat, just as when Bali Maharaj disobeyed Sukracharya, who advised him not to give charity to Bhamandev. Thus, if the words of the preceptor are not aimed at nourishing our bhajan, but rather the opposite, once abandoning that person will not be an offense. And that won't be an abandonment of the principle of Sri Guru. We are not abandoning the principle and we are not being abandoned by the principle. For example, when Bali Maharaj rejected Sukracharya, Sukracharya cursed Bali Maharaj because of leaving him. But we see how, and the curse was, you will lose everything. But by Bali Maharaj embracing the truth and rejecting Sukracharya in that context, he never lost anything. He actually gained everything. So this same criterion applies to a disciple who has been unjustly uh, rejected for sticking with the truth no matter what, like Bali Maharaj did. So in conclusion, in this connection, we must be brave enough and bold in embarking our devotional path, not only in this situation, in every situation. We shouldn't be coward, we shouldn't be hypocritical. Uh, The determination should be, I will not transgress Bhagavan's instructions, but I am willing to transgress everything for him. That's kind of the gopi psychology. They transgress everything, so they don't have to transgress the main principle. So searching, finding, and surrendering to Sri Guru Again, it's not something that we will do because someone else has told us in some social dynamics or as a control mechanism that we will manipulate. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, this will be a very passionate and contained repressible confirmation that will come to us internally. Mm-hmm. Again, whenever, however, that has to happen. Therefore, those who are in this complex scenario, whether, whether having had to abandon their guru for the right reasons, being unjustly rejected, if they remain, remain sincere, in due time, by Krishna's arrangement, they will have their search confirmed by meeting certain sadhus, listening to them, and feeling through them that Krishna is presenting himself once again in their lives, inviting them to continue growing in their relationship with him. And all of this will come again. Let us, let us not have the slightest doubt about that. And if this hasn't arrived yet, then that delay, so to say, it's inviting us to reconsider what, is, what are our real motivations, how to increase our longing and continue purifying this way our intentions by approaching something as sacred as the principle of Sri Guru. So anyhow, some words in connection to which is the situation for those who are in that liminal space having had to abandon their guru for the right reasons, having been rejected for the wrong reasons, for no reason whatsoever. Let's share a few words of conclusion, and with this we will finish today's lecture. So some people with, let's say, a narrow mind, without condemning them, there's whatever, there are stages in life. <laughs> so some people with a narrow mind may hear what some of the things we have shared today or in this series and may think maybe 
we are watering down the idea of guru because we are maybe not as fundamentalists as they are because they may confuse, again, fanaticism with things like guru nishta or firm faith in the guru or total surrender. But actually these two are completely different. So for this type of persons, and we are not free from being there just in case, unexplored territory is dangerous for them. If some topic is addressed in a more new way, nuanced way, it may be feel like dangerous, unknown, dangerously unknown, so it may have to be attacked, so to say. So let's be careful not to indulge in that mentality. I'm not saying this just to point to someone else, but let's be care careful ourselves about not being one of them. And needless to say, by whatever we are sharing today or in these classes, we are not, not only not watering down the principle of Guru, but we are not canceling, much less we are not canceling the principle of Guru Parampara at all. But we are actually trying to broaden and deepen the way we may be conceiving the principle of Guru. We are not diluting the conception, but we are increasing the commitment. Repeat it one more time just in case. We are not diluting the conception. We are trying to increase the commitment. So in the same way that we sometimes experience failure in love in this world, and we try over and over again, next attempt, next attempt, in the same way we could say, maybe we have the worst of our experiences in relation to a so-called agent of truth, and eventually in time we realize that person is not, was, is not bona fide, is false, was false or is false now. But the very word false, as Srila Prabhupada will say, indicates if we say false guru, just that's indirectly confirming there must be a real guru. Because a false guru basically means that which is not a real guru. And if we are the false ones, the false disciples or unbonafide, the mistaken ones, then there is always room for repentance and sincere imploring of mercy and forgiveness, as there is that same place for a guru. Again, we are not condemning anyone for eternity. So this notion of guru basically could be translated as the principle of divine representation. So that's guru, principle of divine representation. This, this is not something limited to an individual, to a person, or to an individual who ideally represents the guru, Vyasti guru, but to every person an object through which God's will is expressed to us. And there's no limit for that. God is, not, God is unlimited, so, so he's not limited to express himself through anyone or even through anything. We know the famous case of the Abadud Brahman in the Bhagavatam who had 24 gurus and many of them were animals or inert objects and so on. So God can enlighten us through an, at an atom whenever. And so in that sense, the idea of guru, again, has, is not limited to a person, but has to do with the notion of divine representation. Whatever God's will is represented and coming to us, that's guru. And eventually we want to enter into a land of gurus. Again, with every atom will be guru. Srila Siddharmaras will say, if we are sincere, we must move forward and we will have the help of so many unseen gurus. So even we have more gurus than what we can see and think of, invisible gurus in every place. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if for some reason our guru had to be abandoned, or as a disciples we have been abandoned for the wrong reasons, whatever the case, there are still plenty of, of ways for remaining connected, for remaining sheltered, inspired, Provided we are sincere. Because remember, sincerity is invincible. So anyhow, some words that we want to share today in relation to this topic and being rejected by one's guru. I'll share a brief 
homework for those who will like, which will be, let's try to meditate on which lessons from today's talk have mostly resounded with you due to your personal experience and or someone else's experience that you have witnessed. And next Tuesday, we will be meeting each other again for the sixth uh, class on Guru Tattva, which will be codependency versus healthy surrender. And so in this case, we have two more classes on Guru Tattva, six and seven. So here we will address from these two classes, not the cases that we address in the last two classes, no? where Guru and disciple abandon each other, but we will address situations where Guru and disciple remain officially together, but internally disconnected from each other through different toxic patterns of spiritual bypassing and so on. So see you next week. Sri Guru Tattva Ki Jai. Sri Man Mahaprabhu Ki Jai. Sri Gaudiya Sampradaya Ki Jai. Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai. Gaur Bhaktavinda Ki Jai. Gaur Praman Haribu Bancha Kalpatarubhyascha. Kripasandupyayibacha Patitanam Pavanipyo Vaishnavibhyanamonam. Ananta Koti Vashnava Brindaki Jai Gaur Haribo